Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bowling. Speaking of Jesus, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming. When no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and he washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, nah, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he answered. They brought, him to the Pharise- brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the, the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said referring to Jesus, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he now can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who'd already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. 
A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And then they hurled insults at him and said, you're this man's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard they had thrown him out. And when he found them, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today we're going to look at perception. The way different people and God see things. And we're going to learn about how we can make things perhaps a bit easier for our worldly friends when we're trying to lead them to an understanding of God's love. Our call to worship today was Psalm 23 in the King James, the old King James Version. For many people, you know, there's a majesty in reciting certain commonly memorized Bible passages in the King James Version. That these and the thou's, the thy, they somehow transport us back to a time when God was truly worshipped. But for other people, indeed most people today, the these and thou's and thy are terribly confusing. And furthermore, what is the difference between my cup runneth over and my cup runs over? For it's much easier to say runs than runneth. And of course, and it maketh is worth, worth, worth too. And of course the reason is that the old King James Version was written over 400 years ago in London at about the same time that a man named William Shakespeare was writing and performing plays on the other side of town. So what is it with the these and the thous? Well, in many languages, we use a different set of pronouns when we speak to someone who's close to us, a member of our family or a close friend, rather than when we're speaking politely to strangers or people who have position. For example, if you're in Spanish and you want to address someone like saying the English word you, 
we might, want to, we might say two when talking to our wife or husband or father. But when we speak to our family and we want to say y'all, we would say vosotros. However, if we're speaking to the mayor or the head of our company, we would say usted instead of you or two. Or if we're speaking to a group of visitors, we would say ustedes. Today in proper English, of course, we use the word you in all four situations, a close relative, a group like our family, a visitor or a group of visitors. Or we might say, we might actually say y'all when we need to indicate a group of people. But back in the early 1600s, when we spoke to a close friend or a family member, we used thou instead of you. Thou was used when our friend was doing the action. Thee when our friend was receiving the action. And thy was the close friend equivalent of your, as in it is thy horse, meaning it's your horse, if talking to a close friend. And now you can see how the these and thous and thys conveyed an important theological truth. God is to be considered a close friend. Thy rod, thou art with me. Whenever we speak to God, we use that familiar form. And furthermore, the extra T on the end of so many words, it was simple agreement. He makes, thou maketh. When thou was used, we put a T on the end of the, the verb. And you'll also remember ye, well that meant y'all. But the reason we use a more modern translation for most Bible readings is simply because the Shakespearean English is too difficult and unfamiliar to us today for most people to follow. We become like blind men trying to follow a discussion of colors. We use modern translations to help people see better. After all, to be really accurate, if we really wanted to get down to the words and get it really accurately, shouldn't we do all of our readings in the original Hebrew or Greek? But then everyone would be blind to the truth of God, right? Our Old Testament reading today points out the differences between the way God sees people and the way ordinary men and women see people. Samuel was the powerful prophet and high priest of Israel about after the time of Judges. It's clear from the record of his life in the book of 1 Samuel that Samuel could hear the voice of God and that Samuel tried his very best to do what God told him to do. Samuel was a man whom we should all try to imitate. Now at the time of our reading, Samuel's probably in his 50s. He's already anointed Saul with oil to declare him the first king of Israel. At that time, Saul was a big, powerful, tall man, about a foot taller than the ordinary Israelite. He looked every bit a king. He was a man you could look up to both figuratively and literally. And when he was anointed, he began to prophesy through the Holy Spirit. God took control of Saul and used him to do great things for Israel with the power of the Holy Spirit. But some time had passed, and now Saul was not obeying God and was stepping out of line. So God told Samuel to go to Bethlehem to a man named Jesse, and God would direct him to anoint one of Jesse's sons as the next king. Samuel's connection to God was well known. It was known that God's power came with Jesse. 
So when he arrived in Bethlehem, the men of the town were afraid. For this visit could be good, or it could mean that God was ready to punish them through Samuel. So they trembled when they met him and and asked, "Do, do, Do you come in peace? When was the last time the presence of one of God's leaders frightened you? Samuel reassured them that he had indeed come in peace. He asked everyone, including Jesse and his sons, to consecrate themselves and come to the sacrifice. He was asking them to clean themselves up and spiritually prepare themselves to go before God. So Jesse brought his big, strapping sons with him to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, who was the oldest of Jesse's sons, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord right here. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Samuel called one by one each of the other sons, but God told Samuel to let them all go past. And finally, Samuel, a bit confused, turned to Jesse and asked, is this all of your sons? Because Samuel knew he had heard that he was to anoint one of them, but yet all of them had been passed on. Jesse said, well, no, there's the youngest youngest one, David, but he's still a boy, and so we left him to watch the sheep. So Samuel had Jesse send for David. When David arrived, it was clear that David was a good-looking guy. He was healthy, he was strong, he was intelligent, And God told Samuel, anoint this one. So Samuel anointed David. He poured the the holy oil on him. And the Holy Spirit came upon David. And then Samuel went back to his home. Samuel, despite his close connection with God, was blind to the possibilities of David. Samuel was looking for another big, tall, powerful man like Saul to be king. For Samuel was like many of us. We can only see the present and the future through the eyes of the past. We look around at situations and people, and we can only see the outside and the past. And so we think the future must be like the past. And, that's what, and that what we can see outside is what is important. But people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, as God told Samuel. God saw David's heart, the heart of a poet, the heart of a warrior, the heart of a man who wanted to always do God's will and was quick to apologize when he did wrong. God saw that David could kill Goliath through God's power and that he would use God's power where David's big, strong brothers would rationally and carefully compare their own strength against the huge strength and size of Goliath and forget that God fights all the battles in our lives if we will just let him. God saw that David would let God take control and work through David. So often we approach situations in our lives that appear similar to something in our past. And so we try the same solutions that worked in the past and forget that God is with us. And we forget that God, who created time and space, isn't bound by the past or what we see as possible. For God creates. 
And so no matter what we've tried in the past that has worked or not worked, this is a new situation. We often are bound by our past failures. We bind ourselves. If we fail too often, we begin to believe that success is impossible. We've become blind to the possibility of of what can happen with God. We've invited our friends and family to church repeatedly, and they did not come, and so we think that it's a hopeless cause. But God can do anything. Perhaps we need to stop being depressed And begin praying for God to bring our loved ones close to God. But there is something that can bind us even more than our failures. With failures, you know, we always can still have hope that things will change. But even worse than being bound by failure is being bound by our success. We did something that was successful in the past. So we believe that following the same process will always bring us success in the future. But nothing fails like success. Nothing fails like success. What do I mean? There's so many examples in business of companies that had a great success in one area. And then they thought they could succeed in many other areas simply by doing the same thing. For example, Ford Motors sold many Model T cars a century ago by making them all exactly the same. Henry Ford knew that his success was that he had learned to make exactly one expensive type, inexpensive type of car with no options. The car sold for $260, equivalent in today's money of just a little over $4,000. Can you imagine buying a brand new car for just a little over $4,000. This was why Henry Ford sold dozens of times more cars than anyone else did. They had all been in the business of making custom cars, but he just made one, and he made it very well, and he cut out all the cost. Indeed, Ford had produced custom designs before the Model T, but after the Model T was introduced, half of all the cars in America became Model T's. And so Henry Ford told his management team when asked about colors that any customer can have a car painted any color that he wants so long as it's black. (laughs) For black was the cheapest color available. It was the cheapest paint and having only one color in production saved all sorts of money for the company. Ford insisted that there would be only one type of car and that was the secret of his success. And then a few years later, General Motors introduced several color options in the 1920s and passed Ford. Ford's very successful formula was the very reason that the company fell behind. Nothing fails like success because it blinds us to the other ways to be successful. Years ago, some churches locked themselves as a matter of doctrine into using only the old King James Version of the Bible. In fact, this this church that we've got a picture of here is called the King James Baptist Church. But as new translations appeared, younger people began to prefer listening to those those new translations because they couldn't understand Shakespeare, and they couldn't understand the these and thous of the King James Version. These churches had succeeded in sticking to their traditions, but the world changed. And it turned out that they had misunderstood what had driven their previous success. It wasn't the rigidity in which translations they used, 
but it was their desire to teach sound doctrine that drove their previous success. They failed because they misunderstood their previous success and were blinded to the other possibilities of teaching sound doctrine with an easier-to-understand translation. Nothing fails like success because it blinds us to the other ways to be successful. A few years ago, another church in this town took off with a high-energy atmosphere, great music, a dense, really packed-in meeting location. And they were successful, but when COVID hit, the densely packed atmosphere was no longer possible, and they began to seriously struggle. Nothing fails like success because it blinds us to other ways to be successful. In our gospel reading, one Sabbath day, Jesus and his disciples came across a beggar who had been blind from birth. The disciples, following an idea common at the time, assumed that the man was blind because of sin. And they asked, was this his fault or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus said, no one's sin had caused the blindness, but God wanted to show what God could do. And Jesus then said, we must do the works of God while we still can. I am the light of the world. He then healed the man. Guy never saw him. Told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. So the guy went away and he washed. And when he washed his face, he could now see. As he came home, the people who knew him looked at him and he looked so different. They were confused and they had an argument over whether this man was the blind beggar. And he had to insist that he was the man. And when they persisted in asking what had happened, he told them about Jesus, but he also said he didn't know where Jesus was. For that matter, he had no idea what Jesus looked like. So the people took him to a group of Pharisees. He told them his story. And they began talking badly about Jesus because he'd healed on the Sabbath. It's like people today who reject preachers because they baptize by sprinkling or because they're from a different denomination or they went to the wrong seminary or they don't wear the right clothing or they use different music or stand behind the pulpit or read scripture from a printout instead of directly from the pulpit Bible. All things that people have become used to and so were blinded by these trivial issues, what they thought were important to the success. In this case, the Pharisees were blinded by the fact that healing had occurred on the Sabbath day. And thus they rejected the fact that the healing had happened. The trivial blinded them to the miracle. So some of them argued about whether or not Jesus was good or evil. And they eventually asked the formerly blind man, and he said Jesus was a prophet, a high compliment. And then they argued over whether he had actually been blind even calling in his parents, who were so afraid of the leaders, they kicked the question back to the formerly blind man. He told them, I don't know if Jesus is a sinner or not. All I know is I was blind and now I see. He was focused upon the facts. The blind man was no longer blind. He didn't really care what other people said about Jesus. He just knew that the healing had come from Jesus. Like many of us, we know that the healing has come from Jesus. And he knew that he had been healed. When they asked for his story again, he said, I told you and you won't listen. Do you want to become his disciples too? And they lost it, insulting him and throwing him out. Well, Jesus heard about this and he went and found him. He introduced himself as the Son of Man. It's a powerful messianic prophetic figure from the books of Ezekiel and Daniel. And the man worshipped him. 
Jesus said, I came into this world so the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And some of the Pharisees overheard this and they said, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. You didn't know any better. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So many times we hear and we hear and we hear about the miracles that Jesus has done in people's lives today, in the lives of our friends, yet we will refuse to accept them. We refuse to listen to these testimonies. We refuse to see the changes in lives. We claim to know much better than everyone else about what's the right way to do things. The right things to believe, the right political policies, the right life to live. We claim that we can see all things and yet refuse to accept new ideas from other people, usually based upon who the person is. And so like the Pharisees, we are blinded by the things we learned in our past and we cannot see the future. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 5 and said, For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of that light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. If we're to live as God would have us to live, we have to leave the darkness of our past behind. The angers and the frustrations, the shameful deeds, the sins of our past, and live as children of light. We all have been in the darkness. We all have to leave the darkness behind. A huge danger to Christians is that we stop learning and we freeze into our souls the black and white ideas we learned when we were young about Christianity and Jesus. For as we grow, we are to learn more than the black and the white, but we are to learn how to handle the gray that is most of life. We are to find out what pleases the Lord. And that means that we are to continually bring light into the world, lifting people up, not darkness putting people down. There's plenty of darkness in the world. Most of us have walked in darkness at one time or another, and most of us have spread darkness at one time or another. But we are to be children of light, and that means that every day, We should look at our lives to see where we have been blind and shine the light of Christ into those dark corners of our lives and then walk into the world with the light we have. That light that's hopefully getting brighter and brighter each day as we chase away the shadows of the world, the darkness that's in us. For an inability to see into the darkness of ourselves and the darkness of others does not please the Lord Instead, we must understand where and how the darkness remains in each corner of the world around us. And you know there's plenty of darkness there. And that means that we have to look intensely at that darkness. And then we need to take the knowledge that we've gained from looking deeply into the darkness of ourselves and our fellow humans and feel that, feed that knowledge into the light that we carry so that our light will grow brighter and brighter each day. Imagine burning a dark piece of wood, burning the coal to make our light brighter. To be very practical, if someone will not consider Jesus, and we don't understand why, 
then we are blind. We must gently ask questions until we do understand, until our blindness goes away. We can't simply say, oh, they're blind, or they don't understand. No, we need to remove our own blindness first by trying to understand them. Or we will be like the Pharisees who think that they understand and see, but are still blind. For we are to find out what pleases the Lord. And we know that what pleases the Lord is leading people to the love of Christ. We must be able to see clearly before we can lead others out of their blindness, out of their darkness. We should never give up hope that we and Christ will one day wash away all of our blindness. For accepting our blindness, even our blindness about what other people think, means living in partial darkness ourselves. So walk boldly into the darkness with the light of Christ that is within you and learn to overcome that darkness by trying to see, removing your blindness so that you can lead others out of darkness as they follow your light, the light of the Christ. We must keep our eyes upon the Christ where all the light comes from. Cedar Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Boley would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you and God bless you in your life.